I think Graham really and truly, I'm not just saying this to toot his own horn, but he really is my favorite artist, uh, musical artist. And he, he not only chooses songs to sing on Sunday morning, but he writes songs much like uh, another one of my favorite artists, Shailen, uh, writes. Uh, well, they're different in style, that's for sure. <laughs> if you know Shailen, uh, yeah, it's just quite different. If you don't, you should go and listen. But he dropped a new song this uh, week, and one of the lyrics in there is that he, he says that some people write songs for Christians so they can get bread, you know, money. Uh, he's writing songs for Christians on their deathbed. And that's the kind of songs that Graham picked for us this morning song, and the kind of songs that he writes, songs that hopefully you'll be singing uh, in hard times this week um, and songs that you'll be singing on your deathbed. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Even to be able to get to the later chorus, and, and, and I shall sing until I die, right? And then even after, we'll be singing a sweeter song. It's those kinds of songs that we, that we need. Uh, not only songs, but sermons. We need sermons like that that will prepare us for hard times and prepare us to live out our days till, till the end. And this is one of those texts. Uh, I think... Jesus did what he did in this passage to help us go through hard times all the way till our deathbed. I think John wrote about this story um, to, to not only help us to believe Christ as worthy of, of our faith and our trust, but to help us in, in the midst of, of hard times. Um, you've heard it. You've heard the songs I've been alluding to. You've heard the text read up to this point, and so let's consider John 13 uh, this morning together and, and consider this, this hard moment in Jesus' life, a confusing moment in the disciples' life, but one I think that will um, bring some assurance to us in our faith in Jesus and will bring some strength to us to be able to persevere through betrayal, uh, through disappointment, through um, facing death, even. Um, uh, Jesus says something in this passage uh, intentionally before it happens, and he says that he does that so that they might believe. And it made me think of uh, magicians and how even as a child I loved magic tricks. I loved being in awe, and you were ultimately in awe of the, the magician. And I especially loved uh, card tricks done right in front of you that just were like, no way, how did, you, how did you do that? And I remember learning, you know, my first kind of like, uh, I can pick your card kind of trick, you know, and, and someone saying, choose, choose a card. And I remember learning one. I remember taking my uh, upper deck baseball card deck of cards. It was 52 baseball players, but also 52 cards on one side. And I remember taking that deck and fanning it out uh, imperfectly and having someone choose a card. 
and then with sleight of hand while they were looking at their card, turn the deck around, you know, and then have them put it in backwards so then I could look through the deck, not even have to see the hearts or the spades or anything, but I could see which baseball player was upside down and I could choose your card. And I just thought I was so clever and so sly and all of that. And so until I didn't have my baseball card deck at one point and tried to do it with another deck of cards and realized that some cards are not upside down. They're, they're, they're the same way, you know, it doesn't matter. And so I look like a fool. But then I learned how to do another trick uh, where I could take mom and dad's nice deck of cards uh, for playing spades with their friends on the weekend and I could put that deck of cards in dad's vice in the garage and get sandpaper and sandpaper the edges of the cards so that they kind of bent inwards. And this is part confession, uh, part <laughs> But they would tilt in a little bit so that when I turned the deck around that time, I could then feel the one that was a little bit sticking out. And I could even produce it with a... and like slide it out of the deck and show them their card. And I, I thought I was so cool at that point. And all this... You know, I was picking people cards. It's that, that shock and that awe. But really, you know, as you've seen on American Idol or on the street when people are watching David Blaine, people are like shocked and think, dude, you are evil. There is something that you're, you're, you have this power. But Jesus doesn't do a card trick. He actually prophesies. He predicts something that's going to happen in the future. And being God, he rightly so can take the attention. And he does it so that people would realize that he is God and that they might believe in him. We see that in his language there in that passage. And so I hope that if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you would see what happened in history and what Jesus did in the, the prophecy and this prediction and yes, more than a magician, be in awe of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and believe Him today. And if you are a Christian, I hope you're encouraged in your faith. I hope you're assured in your faith that when you would go on to face times like Jesus was facing in the midst of betrayal or in the midst of disappointment, even facing death itself, that you would be assured that your faith is in God. Your faith is in God, not a magician, not a, a great speaker, not a, a, good, uh, a, a man who does a bunch of good works. Your faith, your hope uh, is in God and that it would strengthen it for the days ahead. So let's consider John 13, uh, verses 18 through 30. And in John 13, 1 through 17, that we looked at last week, we saw Jesus um, coming to the, the feast of Passover with his disciples and there loving them in all humility, willing to bow his knee and wash their feet, uh, both as a picture uh, that was pointing to not just a physical washing and cleansing of feet, but a spiritual washing and cleansing of the heart. 
that would come through His crucifixion and the shedding of His blood, but it was also not only pointing forward to a spiritual washing, it was an example that was given to the disciples. Um, Not one that necessarily Christians ought to physically wash one another's feet before entering homes or before entering a worship service, Um, but an act of love and humility and sacrificial service done in any way that we could foresee. Uh, As I mentioned last week, there's tens, hundreds, thousands of ways that we could serve one another as Christ gave us an example. And as Jesus was saying this, he, He finished verse 17 saying, if you know these things, both that I am the Son of God, that I've come to serve you, um, and, I've, and I'm going to serve you on the cross, that I've given you an example of these things. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He said that blessing was found not in, um, in the amount of money that you have, not in the size of house that you have, not in uh, anything here on this earth, but blessed are you if you know these things believing them and live them out and do these things. And yet in verse 18, um, the tone of the the evening changes. Uh, You can imagine a sweet, humbling moment of washing someone's, uh, the disciples' feet and everything changing here. Now I've entitled this, this message, Jesus, Our Righteous Sufferer. And what I want you to note here when we get into verse 18 and following is that nothing can hinder the sovereign plan of God. Which is great why uh, Graham chose that song that we just sang, that He is sovereign over us. And we're going to see that this morning. That nothing can hinder the sovereign plan of God. Not a betrayal, not a betrayer. But both will be used by Jesus to fulfill the Scripture and to finalize salvation. Uh, In verses 18 through 20, you might note this, the indication of betrayal so that you might believe. Jesus gives indication of betrayal, a prophecy of betrayal, a prediction that one would betray Him so that you might believe. And so in verse 18, He says, I am not speaking of all of you. And so in one sense, verse 17 is not true of all of the disciples, not all twelve. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus is saying here that there was one among them who was going to, in the end, lift his heel against Christ. Which is why not all of them would be blessed. Which is why not all of them knew and understood these things. We know from earlier on in the Gospel of John that Jesus is speaking of Judas, whom the devil had already tempted um, 
whom the devil had already in John 13 put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So we as readers and John's readers in the first century know that Jesus is talking about Judas. But put yourself in the story. The disciples do not know that. That's 2020 hindsight for the Apostle John. They don't know that Jesus is talking about Judas at that time. Um, and so Jesus is, is here predicting that there's one among them that is going to betray him. And Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And so consider that phrase for a minute. That, that Jesus knew in the choosing of his 12 disciples that one of them would betray him. In fact, he was chosen for that very purpose. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by Judas betraying him. He, he, it didn't like pull the cloak over his eyes and, and all of a sudden shock him. Jesus was intentional about this from the very beginning. He chose. And Jesus says here, I know whom I've chosen. I know I've chosen Judas. I know Judas doesn't believe. He doesn't know these things. He's not going to do these things. He won't enjoy that blessing that most of you are going to enjoy. In fact, he, he goes another step further and says that he did this uh, so that the Scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus chose Judas to fulfill a role, one that would, be, would end up fulfilling Scripture. And Jesus, in fact, tells us exactly what Scripture Jesus has in mind. It's, he quotes it there as, "...he who ate my bread..." has lifted his heel against me. And so this one quote, it both gets at a cultural idea, but also an Old Testament idea. The cultural idea of the fact that if you were to break bread with someone in their home and eat a meal with someone, especially one who was higher than you in cultural standards, then uh, that was a blessing. And yet, this one who has eaten bread with Christ, um, has shared a meal with him, would end up betraying him, going against that cultural norm there. But it also has an Old Testament root. And here is where Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. And Psalm 41 is a lament. And it's a lament for one who in verse 1 is described as caring for the poor, and yet, as they go on, they end up, uh, their enemies and their friends are betraying them. It describes the idea of a righteous sufferer, one who does what is right but ends up suffering unjustly at the hands of the wicked until the Lord would end up vindicating them. And so as Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, it's likely that as, as the Jews of that day uh, would have interpreted that psalm being written by David uh, after the situation with his son Absalom. Uh, when David's, one of David's key counselors, Ahithophel, um, betrays David, having shared many meals, having broken much bread with David, after 
David's son, Absalom, usurps the throne, uh, and David runs away, Ahithophel, David's counselor, betrays David and runs to Absalom and gives him advice. And yet, when uh, God thwarts Ahithophel's counsel and his counsel is not taken, Ahithophel then runs away and commits suicide because he knows there's no place for him in the kingdom in the end. Sound familiar? (laughs) You see a New Testament uh, version of that coming in Judas, who himself will commit suicide, uh, having betrayed not the king in the Old Testament, but the king of kings, the son of God. In, uh, in, here in the New Testament, right, right in front of him. And so that's the story that the disciples have in the back of their mind when they hear Jesus read just one verse from this uh, Psalm 41. And, and this then is the Scripture that's going to be fulfilled. Though we know who it is, the disciples don't know who it is. And Jesus says in verse 19, why he's telling them this. I'm telling you this before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. I am who? I am God. That's what Jesus wants them to believe. Because what Jesus is doing right there is the same thing that God did in the Old Testament so many times. Uh, One of the uh, clearest that you could see, Isaiah 41, verse 26, where God says, Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. Uh, In Isaiah, actually, I've charted these out uh, in reading through it, but if, if you read through Isaiah, you'll find many different times where God says, I told it to you before it happened so that when it happened, you would believe that I am God. No one else is doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. And so Jesus here is using that I am language that is characteristic of Jesus in his ministry and that John is recorded in the Gospel of John. The seven I am statements declaring Like God did in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm telling you that one is going to betray me and fulfill Psalm 41.9. And I'm telling you this before it's even taken place. Before you disciples have no clue about it. I'm telling it to you so that when it happens, you may believe that I am He. I am who? I am God. And that their belief would be solid and secure uh, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That they wouldn't stumble over Him, but they would be built on top of Him and be confident in that. And so, Christian, there is room for encouragement in these Scriptures here. That you too would see uh, thousands of years after This evening and after this evening was ultimately fulfilled uh, in Judas's betrayal and in Jesus's crucifixion, that you have put your faith in one who has predicted the future 
in the past. And he's actually predicted the future in our future as well. And the fact that he's going to return one day. And if he's predicted the future and been good on it in the past, if he's predicted the future for us in his return, even as bad as things may be on this earth, we have hope in, a, in, in the Son of God. We have confidence and assurance in one who gets all things right. So you can be encouraged whether you're betrayed like Jesus or you're facing hard times as Jesus was this evening or whether you're on your deathbed facing the end of your days. You have put your faith and your hope in Christ, the Son of God, uh, one who you can have confidence in. And Jesus would go on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so having just said, I'm, I'm saying these things to you in hopes that you'll believe me, Jesus is now hinting at the fact that these disciples are going to be sent out as well to proclaim this same message and hope in Jesus Christ. And if someone would receive them, they're in turn receiving Christ. And in receiving Christ, they're actually receiving God the Father. And that was good news for them. This is just a hint of what Jesus will do later in John chapter 20 when He says that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so church, I, I want you to realize that when we finish our gathering this morning and we have our benediction and I send you out to be the church in the world knowing you're going, having put your faith in the Christ, the Son of God, who knows all things, past, present, and future, uh, knows your circumstances, knows that He's going to return in the end. You've put your faith in Him and you are sent um, as Christians bearing the name of Christ to go out and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, inviting others to believe in Christ as well. And if they believe the message that you're sent out with, uh, as we've believed the message the apostles have been sent out with, then they'll receive Christ too. And in receiving Christ, they too will receive the Father as well and all that the Father has for them. And so there's both good news for the Christian here. There's good news for you who are not a Christian here this morning, hearing my words 2,000 years after the Apostles John, John's words, 100 years after John heard Jesus' words and was sent out to proclaim this message and to write down this gospel. Did you hear, um, you know, good preachers are really just saying the same things over and over again and the same things that have been said over and over again. And the phrase that we've been using um, in our benediction coming from John when John gives us the reason why he wrote this gospel so that you might believe and have life in his name. Do you see that John really didn't come up with that? That was Christ's words. And he's going to say it again in John chapter 14, Jesus will. That, that Jesus has done these things so that 
they might believe, which is a good reason why John picks that up and says, the reason I've written my gospel is because I was sent out by Christ, and I'm writing this gospel so that you might believe. And Christian, when you go out this afternoon, you are sent out with the gospel so that others might believe and have life in His name. And if you're here this morning uh, because of the invitation of a friend or a loved one, or you've straggled in here to the YMCA thinking you could work out and now you're getting a spiritual work out, then I hope and pray that you too would believe that Jesus Christ is God, that He's the Son of God, and that He came knowing the beginning from the end, having chose uh, one of His own disciples who would eventually betray Him that would bring about His crucifixion on the cross, His burial in the grave, His resurrection from the dead, and His ascension on high so that you might be saved. Jesus did this for you, and I, I hope and pray that you, like me and many others in this room, would believe. But in the first section, we saw an indication of betrayal so that they might believe. But in this second section, we see an identification of the betrayer so that he might begin begin his betrayal that uh, he might put into motion the actions that will bring about the crucifixion of Christ. And again, like I said, reading John's Gospel, we know who this is. But the apostles, the disciples, in the midst of the story, they don't know. And so keep that, as, keep that in mind as we're reading this. In verse 21, John writes, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. The same word that was used to describe Jesus when he came upon Mary weeping after the death of Lazarus in 1133. It's the same way he felt when he thought about his own death in John 12, 24. Jesus is troubled in spirit. And the same is true uh, as I just highlight, same is true in those stories as I'm trying to highlight in these stories while that first section of my sermon this morning was highlighting Jesus' divinity, knowing the past, present, and the future and was able to predict it so that one might believe here in this passage we see again that he's troubled in spirit. So we've got both his divinity and his humanity. That Jesus is, is displaying both His Godhood and His manhood. And we've got to have both uh, in, in Christ uh, as our, our perfect Savior. And so see Jesus' humanity in the fact that, again, for the third time in the Gospel of John, He's troubled in His spirit. And so He testifies, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. Again, they don't know who this is. Uh, they're clueless at the fact. Uh, and so in 22, John records what happened that evening, that the disciples repeatedly looked around at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And so you could, you know, if, if you're looking at me right now, you can imagine being at that meal and kind of being like, I don't know, eyebrows raised, shoulders kind of shrugging. Do you know? 
I don't know. Do you know who he's? I don't know who he's talking about. And so they're confused. Uh, the three other gospel writers um, uh, mentioned that all of them were questioning, is it I? Is, am I going am I, am I to do it? Are you going to do it? I don't, who, who's going to do this? They don't understand. Uh, and so in 23, then, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, and here we have the first time uh, what I think, and most commentators would say, John here is referring to himself. He's not naming himself, for he doesn't want the attention to be on himself. He wants the attention to be on Christ. And so, John is simply saying here, one of the disciples on whom the Lord directed his love to, on, on one whom was unworthy of the Lord's love but the Lord loved him anyways. And John wasn't the only one that that was the case. John is just using that to describe himself. And what a great way for, for us in humility to describe ourselves, that we're just one undeserving fellow of the Lord's love. And that the Lord has shown His kindness and His grace and His mercy to me. And, and we could describe ourselves on, on one whom the Lord has shown His love. And John will go on to describe himself in this way several more times, but this is the first time. And so he says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. And so you can picture the scene, a large table uh, with 13 people around it, um, John himself sitting close and near to Jesus, maybe even right by his side. As everyone's questioning, is it I? Not knowing who it was, looking at one another. Simon Peter, usually um, with his mouth open and, and asking the questions, even in this moment, is, is kind of silent. And he eyeballs John. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so you can imagine Peter in that moment, not opening his mouth, but looking at, at John and ke catching eyes with him for a moment and being like, you know, give him the head nod. Ask him. You're right by him. Lean over and ask him. And so John, likely sitting by Jesus, he leans over and... Um, verse 25, the disciple leaning back against Jesus as they were reclining at table, and he said to him, Lord, who is it? Now again, John is asking this quietly, secretly. He's not asking it publicly for all the disciples. He's leaning back kind of, hey, Jesus, who is it? Who, who's going to do this? And Jesus tells him again silently, verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So John now is kind of let in on this scene of Jesus' knowledge of who it was who was going to betray him. Whoever was going to receive the morsel of bread that Jesus had, having dipped it in the wine and then would pass it to that person, was going to be the one who would betray him. And so being let in on a little bit of the story middle of verse 26 says, So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. That's why we get Judas Iscariot. Judas from Kerioth. 
who, who was the son of Simon from Kerioth. And then after he had taken the morsel, John notes here that Saint, Satan entered, him, entered into him. Um, earlier, it said in John 13 that Satan had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Here, it shows Satan going a, another step further. Um, Judas himself not being one of Christ's own, not having filled his heart with faith in Jesus Christ, having believed that Jesus was the Son of God, Satan then entered into his heart to fully bring out this plan that had been put into motion from, from the beginning. Um, and so when Jesus, after he had taken the mor morsel and Satan had entered into him, Jesus looks to Judas and says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And I love that in this verse, we see Jesus' sovereign hand over his, his own crucifixion. Jesus' sovereign hand over salvation. It wasn't Judas who alone uh, betrayed Jesus and, and, ha and showed power over Jesus. For Jesus would elsewhere say, No one takes my life from me, for I willingly give up my life of my own accord. Here, Jesus is actually, has actually chose Judas to be one of the twelve, to be able to have this moment with Jesus on this evening. And when Satan had entered into him um, to bring this about, Jesus actually encourages him to go and do what he was going to do quickly. You, you think Jesus is not sovereign, uh, knowledgeable about what Judas is about to do, in control uh, of what is about to do, uh, about to happen the very next day in his own crucifixion, and doing it all as the Apostle John wrote in the early verses of John chapter 3, John chapter 3, washing their feet, being betrayed, being crucified. Why? Because he loved them till the end. Which is why John would love to have that description about himself. One whom um, Jesus loved. And if you've trusted in Christ as well, that's a description of you as well. And he is lovingly encouraging Judas to betray him um, so that he could go to the cross for you, so that he could atone for your sins, so that you could receive forgiveness of your sins, and not just forgiveness, uh, but receive life, eternal life with him now and for forevermore. And so Jesus urges him. He shows his sovereignty to go and to do what he was going to do and to do it quickly and to get this over with. And here in verse 28 is where we get a little bit, uh, a few more brush strokes of the scene that evening to be able to know that these other disciples were unaware of what just happened. In verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Except, of course, John, whom John just detailed the scene. Some of them thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him 
buy what we need for the feast. Remember the fact that Judas had been the handler of the money bag had come up earlier in the washing of Jesus' feet uh, with the oil. And Judas was upset um, that evening that the money from that oil, uh, the oil wasn't sold and the money given and put into the money bag to be able to bless the poor. Uh, And here, because he's the handler of the money bag, everybody else thinks, and, and again, not knowing that he used to help himself to the money bag, being unaware that Judas was going to be the one to betray him, they just thought, oh, he, he's got the money. Jesus is sending him out on mission to get what the other things we need for the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread coming. Or others even thought um, that he should um, go out and give something to the poor. And here, e- even Psalm 41 is uh, brought back to mention. For Psalm 41 says, blessed is he who gives to the poor. And yet, even in giving to the poor, is treated unjustly and and has to wait on the Lord to vindicate him. And so, Jesus already brought up Psalm 41. Why would he not then send out one of his disciples to bless the poor who at the Feast of Passover and at the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have been crowded at the gates as travelers would have been coming in to Jerusalem. Um, they would have been um, gathering in crowds to be able to ask for, for money. This is what the disciples are thinking, thinking no worse about Judas than anybody else, not having heard that quiet comment to John, not knowing who it was to betray him. They just think Judas is going out to get some more food for the evening feast um, or to even give something to the poor at the gates that evening. But John notes in verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Jesus already having said, do it quickly, Judas has to obey. He immediately went out. And look at how John describes that moment. It was night. It was night. Jesus had already said and encouraged his followers, having entered into Jerusalem, for them to believe and to follow while it was still day. But night was coming. Uh, And here John is noting in the narrative When this happens, night has fallen. Night has fallen. Judas was going to put into action the betrayal of Jesus and to begin those steps. Um, Jesus would willingly allow himself to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would eventually uh, be wrongly tried and condemned, crucified, uh, to die a criminal's death on the cross, hang there until he uh, gave up his own life. For remember, they didn't, when they came to break the legs of the criminals on the cross to quicken the crucifixion uh, process and their death, they didn't need to break Jesus' knees for he had already given up his own life at that point. Crucified for us. Buried and raised for us so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 
At that moment when Jesus said to Judas, do this quickly, and he immediately went out, uh, essentially Judas' script had been written. It seems as if Judas's script had been written from the beginning, but for sure in this moment his script had been written, and he goes out to do exactly what he had planned to do and to do exactly what Jesus uh, encouraged him to do, commanded him to do. But we've got to consider it was night for Judas uh, that evening, but it's not night for us. I mean, at least the Lord has given us this moment, this breath, these minutes, this hour, this day. We can't guarantee tomorrow. We can't guarantee this week, Thanksgiving meal. Can't guarantee 2024. And so while it's still day in that sense, and and you have the privilege of hearing this saint's words, not saint like a holy character in the church, but just one on whom the Lord has shown his love, just like you might be described. You're hearing these words, this gospel. I want to encourage you to believe, to to believe in Christ, who is the Son of God and willingly left heaven um, to be born of a virgin without a sinful nature and to live a sinless life and to be crucified and raised Believe Him while you have the opportunity. And then spend your life being sent out, going out with that same gospel message, that same hope, that same forgiveness uh, that you have. If you're a Christian and and you have believed these things, church, we have the opportunity this morning to consider the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. A, A very similar meal, a meal with some of the same elements, bread and wine or juice, but used in a different way, Uh, used in a way to remember a better sacrifice than the sacrifice that was offered by the lamb in Egypt to save the firstborn son of every household. We are going to eat of bread and drink of the juice that reminds us of Christ and his sacrifice. And lest we, like Judas, just go through the ritual of celebrating the Passover, as Judas did year after year after year, never letting it actually enter into his heart, never actually believing in what the Passover was pointing to, and himself denying Jesus and and. and ultimately betraying Jesus, let us not. Hear the warning that we ought not come to the table again this morning. Just going through a church ritual that we do, that we're commanded to do, to remember Christ and His body that was given and His blood that was shed as often as we gather together. Christian, church, don't just come and stand up and go through the line and break of the bread and take of the cup and eat and drink just because that's what you're supposed to do. Take a moment to consider, uh, am I, having believed these things once and for all for the forgiveness of my sins, have I believed them this week? Have I believed that Jesus is He, God, 
the Son of God who gave his life for me? Am I acting on those beliefs, living in faith and obedience day in and day out? We have the opportunity this morning to consider our own hearts. And is our worship this morning going to be just outward, going through the ritual routine like Judas, or is it going to be inward like John or Peter, even though they may have come to a fuller understanding of that later? What Jesus did that evening was no magic trick, no sleight of hand, no illusion, no deception. He said what was going to happen so that you might believe when it actually happened, and he actually brought it about. He did that. The only way that was possible was because he was God. And so let me encourage you, believe in Christ as the Son of God who gave his life for you. And if you have believed, then let's remember on whom our faith was put days, weeks, months, years ago through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, that, that you, unlike all of the magicians that we've looked at before, uh, are worthy of our praise and our honor. No, no magician who's done card tricks or illusions deserves our awe. We know it's a sleight of hand. We know uh, it's just a trick. But Jesus, what you did this evening in predicting Judas's betrayal and then enacting Judas's betrayal so that you might be crucified, both was done so that people might believe and that their might, belief might be on the confident cornerstone of Jesus Christ on whom the um, the house of God is built. And so, God, I pray that some, even one this morning, um, may have to say that years of ritual, routine, uh, outward obedience that simply had the illusion of faith would come to true saving faith this morning. And God, I pray that if there's any of us who call ourselves Christians and, and truly are, and, and call ourselves members of the Fields Church even, and yet are not living like it, not believing like it, we might repent even now in this moment. Ask you once again for uh, a fresh forgiveness of our sins. And would come and worship you this morning in spirit and in truth through the Lord's Supper and remembering Christ, your uh, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice on the cross. Lord, may we as a church uh, especially be encouraged in these things, knowing that we're going to go out and face betrayal and face hardship, and face death one day. And we need sermons and songs that will prepare us for those days. We need to sing the truth and hear the truth so that we might remember the truth 
day in and day out, week in and week out. So Lord, remind us as we've both sung the word and heard the word, let us now see the word in the Lord's Supper to be sent out with your word so that others might believe and have life in your name. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.